Well, good evening, and uh, welcome to a new series. I don't know if you guys missed me, but I definitely missed you. So I've been talking my wife's ear off the last three Wednesdays. It's just, you know, an hour. I said, look, from 6.30 to 7.30, I just need to talk, okay? It's kidding. It's good to be back. I really am excited about this series. I think it's just exactly what we as a faith community need at this point in time. So I think it's going to be fascinating. Let me say a prayer and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for the mercy you've shown to us and the grace that you give us. We're grateful that you're with us in our difficulties and we're grateful, Father, that you have blessed us with so many kindnesses, both big and small. Father, I do pray for our nation. I pray that your hand would be upon our leaders and that you would turn their hearts to you. And yet, whatever happens, Father, I know that you are the one who controls all of history and everything moves to your purposes in the end. And Father, I pray for your grace to be poured out on this nation in Christ's name, amen. Well, you guys probably know this, but every week we give you the number to text your questions during class. I'll be shocked if you don't have a few questions. But for those of you online, uh, it's on your handout. Same here, it's at the bottom of your handout. We're going to study uh, a letter in the New Testament, and most of your New Testament are letters. I know we call them the Book of Ephesians, and that's just because we bound these things into a book, and a codex. And so it's just a, a way of talking about it. But these things, the Ephesians, is originally a letter. And so I thought we might start with framing up when and where and the context of this letter written to the Christians at Ephesus. So obviously you got to know where, so you need a map. And this map is charting... You can see on the map, this is basically everything from Greece. Rome is over this way. Greece on the left, all the way to the Middle East. It says Palestine here, uh, because that's what the Romans called the nation of Israel. It's called Palestine by the Romans. And then, of course, Syria. And this is the Roman province of Asia and all, this whole area. And it is currently Turkey. So modern-day Turkey, the Romans divided their kingdom up into areas that, that governors would rule, and that was the area of Asia. And so this story, in your Bible, the book of Acts, is actually a history, if you will. It is telling the story of after the resurrection of Christ... It doesn't tell you everything that happened, obviously, but it tells you how the gospel spread. And it's actually just a little book of history of what's happening. And after a while, it begins to follow Paul, who's one of the evangelists. And of course, there's many, many other things happening, but it follows Paul, the evangelist. And so this trip, this map shows you where he went on what's called his third missionary journey. And really what it amounts to is he just said, look, I'm an evangelist, I wanna go preach the gospel, and he just takes off and just travels. And this journey lasted from 53 to 57 AD. How do we know? Because from the book of Acts, you can tell exactly where he went because it tells you. You can tell what happened at all these places, and you can date it because of other things that tie into history. So the Apostle Paul leaves Antioch in Syria. That's where he went to church. That was his home church, which is still today, Antioch in Syria. And he made his way through all these towns in the province of Asia. But when he got to the town of Ephesus, he actually spent quite a bit of time there. And I'm gonna pick up in Acts chapter 19 to Acts chapter 21 is the story of this journey. And it's happening between 53 and 57 AD. It says when he got to Ephesus, he entered the synagogue, which is always his custom to go to the Jewish synagogue. And for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So what's he doing? He's going into the synagogue and he's speaking and he's taking the Old Testament and he's saying, this all points to Jesus Christ and let me tell you what is done. Jesus is the Messiah, and he begins to reason with them from the scriptures. He said, but when some became stubborn and continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way, meaning 
Christ, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took those who believed, the disciples, and he rented uh, a place called the, the uh, Hall of Tyrannus, and he there began to preach daily and reason and talk to anybody that wanted to come. He did that for two years so that all the residents of Asia, that whole province, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Well, Ephesus was uh, one, a major, major port city. In the ancient world, there were three great commercial ports, Alexandria in Egypt and Ephesus in Turkey was another huge port. And then Rome had a port in Ostia that was uh, also big, but frankly, in Palestine, Caesarea on the sea that uh, Herod had built was a massive port. So Ephesus was big city, big commercial city. And so what Paul did was he began to preach there. And when he was preaching there, there were a lot of people, old people, younger people who became believers and they would go back to their hometown and they would, at their hometown, spread the word because people would come to a large city for business and then they'd go back. And so what this is telling you, and this is historically true, all of this area, people would go back and preach the gospel and churches start springing up throughout that whole area of Asia. You've probably heard of a church in Laodicea. It's mentioned in the book of Revelation. There's a letter to the church in Colossae, the Colossians. Those are towns in, in this area. And Paul didn't start those churches. People that heard him preaching for those two years in Ephesus, then they went home and they started preaching. And so it had a huge impact in this area. In fact, when Paul was preaching there, the impact was so big that it began to really affect the culture of Ephesus. Now you need to think about this. This is like Billy Graham goes to New York City, preaches there for two years and gets thrown out because he's totally disrupted the economy of the city. That's what happened here. So let me read a little more. About that time, while he's preaching in Ephesus, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, Christianity. There was a man named Demetrius, he's a pagan, he, a Greek silversmith, and he made silver shrines of Artemis. This is a statue of the goddess Artemis. She's a fertility goddess and any number of other things. And she happened to be the patron goddess of Ephesus. In fact, they had built a temple in Ephesus. I think on your handout, you can see some of the ruins, but this is a reconstruction of the temple at Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was magnificent. It was a, a tourist attraction. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, like the pyramids, for example. They had just put so much money into this and they were so devoted to the goddess Artemis. Well, Demetrius, who was a silversmith, and all the other trades made little idols, which everybody wants at least one. You need one in your car, you need one at your home, you need one on your desk. So they're doing a great trade and exporting all these little amulets of Artemis because people literally would pray to Artemis for favor. And so he got together with some of the other tradesmen and he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people by telling people that gods made with human hands are not really gods at all. That would be one obvious implication of Christianity, wouldn't it? Is if you were a pagan and you had all these gods and you became a Christian, you'd say, those aren't actually gods, those are amulets. And so I no longer pray to them, don't need to buy any more of them, don't need to give them as Christmas gifts anymore. In other words, so many people had changed their behavior that this guy says he's gonna ruin our business. He said there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, meaning, and here's the real reason, we are losing money, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be counted as nothing and she may even be deposed from her magnificence. That's the cover story, 
right? Usually, when, you've got, when you're greedy, you need to wrap yourself in the flag or mom and apple pie or something to make it sound noble. So bottom line, they're losing money and they just don't want Artemis to be insulted. So when they heard this, the men were enraged and they started crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, they not only started crying out about this, a riot breaks out and they start looking for this guy, Paul, because they're gonna kill him. Right, He's affronted them, and, and so you get this mob mentality. So they gathered together in this theater. This is the current remains of the theater in Ephesus. You can see in this view that I have on the right, from the side, you can see how huge this thing is. The view on the left is interesting just because I like it, and that is you can see that there was a seaport right here, and this magnificent colonnaded street, you gotta think about this. this is, these are 2,000 year old ruins, uh, led right down to the harbor. And so when you were watching the play or something, you, you had this, the harbor as the backdrop. And so, but they all rush together and they fill this stadium and they begin to shout for Paul. And they begin to, for two hours, the text says, you can read this story, it's worth reading in Acts 19 to 21. It began to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they're of a mood to kill anybody who's associated with this way. So Paul says, I'd like to go out and talk to him. And their others go, you are nuts. We're hustling you out of town. And they call an Uber and they get him out of town right away. All right, so Paul is forced out of town and the, all the Christians then continue there and the riot dies down and, and life goes on. But I thought one thing that I just thought was really interesting about that, and this is an aside, but just the history of this. If we're doing Christianity right, it's going to change behavior so much that it's going to affect our society. It'll affect our society economically like this in what the society would call a negative way. You know, not as many people are watching porn, not as many people are betting, not as many people are doing it, but also in a positive way. Oh, these Christians, they're a force for justice. They actually believe in treating everybody well, you know. In other words, it's interesting looking at this and you see this is what the church, is. this will be the effect of the church when lives are changed. Well, that's what Paul was doing. So he left and he continued on the journey. And he continues all the way through Greece and he goes back to uh, Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, I'll go back to that map. So at the end of his trip, he ends up back in Jerusalem. He started in Antioch, but he ends up here. And the reason that he does that is on his journeys, there's been a big drought and famine in uh, Palestine. And so you've got Jewish Christians, which I, by that I mean just Christians who are Jewish ethnically. And then he's talking to a lot of people that are Christians, but they're not Jewish. They're, you know, they're, they're Greek, they're Parthians, they're all number of people. And he said, you know, one of the great things that you could do is give a little bit of money, I'll take it back and we will help the brothers and sisters there uh, with the famine. And so he does, and so he goes back to Jerusalem and he decides, man, I'm gonna go to Rome. And so I'm gonna deliver this money and then I'm going to Rome because I haven't been there before. So he goes there, little hitch in the plans. This is a great example of be careful what you pray for. You gotta be specific, people. Because all he prayed for was, God, I wanna go to Rome. Well, he did. So he goes back to Jerusalem and at Jerusalem they arrest him. The Jews try to kill him. The Romans say, what in the world is going on here? And so since he's a Roman citizen, they take him to Caesarea and they keep him there for two years under house arrest. And then finally, they send him to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. So Paul does get to Rome, but he gets to Rome as a prisoner. While he's there, he's under house arrest in Rome waiting to appeal to Caesar. And the time is now about 62 AD. So he's in prison here and in 62 AD, he's writing letters. A lot of the letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote were written in this time frame because he's under house arrest. He can't go out and preach, but he can write letters to all these churches and encourage them. This is when he wrote the letter back to the Ephesians. He'd been there five years before. He'd spent two and a half years or so in Ephesus 
And so now he's writing a letter back to them to encourage them and to continue to teach them. And so that's the context of this letter. That's where it came from, that's when it was written. And what we have preserved today for 2,000 years is that very letter that Paul wrote from prison to the Christians in Ephesus. Now we're gonna study in, uh, tonight, we're going to just do chapter one, verses three through 14. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, you, you should make some notes, because I wanna outline it. I wanna tell you two things about this. Number one, verses, everything that we're going to look at, all the scripture we look at tonight, verses three through 14, it's 202 words, and it's all one sentence. It is the second longest sentence in the New Testament. Can you guess who has the first? Paul also has the first longest sentence. And so I'm sure he flunked English, but this is one big old run-on sentence. He is so excited about what he has to say. But this sentence, verses three through 14, really breaks down, he has three things to say. And it's on your handout, but it's this. This is, this is what he wants to communicate. God chose us. Jesus redeemed us. And the Holy Spirit seals us. That's what this sentence is saying. But I wanna dive in because it gets into some really interesting areas. And so here's the beginning, verses three through six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus the Messiah, who has blessed us in Christ, God has blessed us through Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of God's will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in his beloved son. Now that is a powerful little thing to say. Uh, on the one hand, he's basically saying, you have been blessed beyond measure because before the world was even created, God chose you in Christ to be holy and blameless. He predestined you to be adopted into his family. And so it ends, it says, his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, I wanna to talk to you about predestination. So we're gonna spend a little time in this section on predestination. And are people predestined to heaven? Are they predestined to hell? What do Christians think about this idea? So by way of introduction, I want you to think about this in a biblical way. So first of all, there are no neutral people. So in other words, before we go into this discussion, I don't want you to think that we've got everybody here in, let's say it's a jury pool, all right? And you're all just neutral. You could go either way. And so those who believe in God's predestination of individuals would say, well, he picked you and picked you and picked you because he just liked the way you look. The rest of you, uh, sorry, hell, that's what I got for you. All right, so you get this idea of predestination as a God's just kind of randomly picking people. The other side of this, because I'm gonna talk about both of these major points of view, a more, I'm gonna just call it Wesleyan, but it's a little bigger than that, but a Wesleyan view would say, no, any of you could be a juror if you decide to be a juror. In other words, God will take as many of you as decide to be a juror. Okay, so I wanna call time out on that idea because that's not even slightly the way this thing works. What the scripture teaches about is there are no neutral people. We don't start out as neutral, like, well, I could go either way, heaven or hell. That's not, the, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus taught. He said, every single one of us has rebelled against God, all of sin, fallen short of the glory of God. That's, it's all over your New Testament. This is your and my story. We are alienated from God because of our sin. And consequently, 
we have a death sentence. The wages of sin is death. In other words, we have already chosen sides, if you want to think about it that way, because our destiny is hell, is death, because we're alienated from God. So it's not a matter of we're just standing here, oh, could go either way. What the Bible teaches is, no, we are on our way, and we are on our way to destruction. Does that make sense? That's Christian doctrine, is the nature of humanity, is all have sinned. All have rebelled against God. Okay, now, all of a sudden, predestination looks a little different, doesn't it? And this is actually how Calvinists and Wesleyans think about predestination. This is called the doctrine of total depravity. I don't mean depravity as in no, you can never do a good deed or you're, you, know, you can never do something good. What total depravity means is that we are unable to alter our own course. Left on our own devices, we are headed down the road of sin which leads to destruction. Whether you're Wesleyan or Calvinist, absolutely agree with that because that's the biblical idea. The catch comes in, and this is where predestination comes, is God rescues some people. I'll tell you another word for rescue in Greek, saves. Everywhere you read save in the New Testament, that Greek word is often translated in other contexts as rescue. He rescues people. So it's not a neutral group and saying, you go this way, you go that way. You're all headed this way and God rescues some people. And this text says, he made that choice before the foundation of the world. Does that make sense? I just want to frame this up so that we're thinking about this in a biblical way. So our response, by the way, to this is not, gee, is God being fair? The response is gratitude, and that's what this says. Think about this. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. This is gratitude for having been rescued by God. Okay, so how then do people get rescued? What's, what is the criteria for that? So John Calvin, if you're Catholic, and I'm not gonna talk about this unless you have a question, all the way up until 1500 or so, the Catholic doctrine is you are rescued by God based on faith and works. You got penance, you've got confession, etc. Faith and works. Well, along come John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Wesley, all these guys, and they say, wait a minute, we read the New Testament, and it says you're saved by God's grace through faith. In other words, this is a gift. You don't earn it. You're not in the jury pool deciding what you're going to do. It's like, no, you're doomed unless God rescues you. And what determines whether he rescues you? You're saved by his grace through faith. So Calvin comes along and he says, believes in two key ideas. One is unconditional election. Election is the actual word for choosing or predestining. So the doctrine, theologians don't really talk about predestination so much as they talk about election, choosing. God chose you, he elected you, he predestined you. So we'll, we'll just use those interchangeably for our purposes. He said that God's choice is unconditional, means it doesn't make any difference what you did or what you were going to do because he made that choice before the foundation of the world. So is it because he knew you were gonna be bright and cheery and good looking and a nice person? No, he said that's totally on God. You and I did nothing to deserve this. It's called unconditional choosing unconditional election. And he believed in one other thing called irresistible grace. Meaning if God wants to give you a gift, by golly, you're going to take it. And irresistible grace says that when God chose to rescue you, you will be rescued. You don't have a role to play in this. That's Calvinism in a nutshell. All the Calvinists out there are like, oh my gosh, you've you really distilled that. Yes, I have. 
And so Calvin is a combative little fellow. He's a lawyer. Not that there's anything wrong with lawyers. He said the very time that the election took place proves it to be free, meaning totally God. For what could we have deserved or what merit did we possess before the world was even made? How childish is the attempt to say we were chosen as worthy because God saw that we would be worthy. We were all lost in Adam. Wesley would agree with that too. And therefore, had not God, through his own election, rescued us, then we were doomed. So he's basically saying it's all on God and there's nothing on us. It's unconditional choosing on God's part. Well, that makes some sense out of that passage. He chose us individually. I'm gonna add a word there that makes sense. He chose us individually before the foundation of the world. And if you read that passage in that way, that's your understanding, you are a Calvinist. And it's okay. But there's another way to read that. And so John Wesley says this, as he has chosen us, both Jews and Gentiles, whom he foreknew would believe in Christ. So what's the difference? And then I'm gonna to point to the similarities because the similarities are many, many more than the differences. So what's the difference? The difference is that first of all, John Wesley doesn't believe in unconditional election, choosing. He believes in conditional election, meaning God extends the offer and he has chosen everyone who will respond with belief, with trust in Christ. So he will read this passage. I'm doing a little injustice to this, but trust me, very simple way to think about this. And that is, he's gonna read this passage a little differently. He's gonna say, for God chose us as a group before the foundation of the world. Calvin says, God chose you individually and you had nothing to do with it. Well, apparently not, if it was before the foundation of the world. Wesley's gonna say, God chose there to be people, a way for people to be rescued because of Christ. In other words, he made a mechanism so that any of us who would respond in trust could be saved. So he basically elected the fact that there would be Christians, there would be saved people. Whereas Calvin reads it as no, he elected the individual saved people. That's fundamentally the distinction. Now, they both agree, however, God acts first. In Calvin's scheme, God acts first, second, third, and last. It's all God. Wesley does not believe in free will, libertarian free will, meaning you are totally free to believe in God or not believe in God. That's not a biblical doctrine at all. Here's what Wesley believed. He didn't believe in irresistible grace. He believed in prevenient grace. What's prevenient grace? God is so gracious, he gave everybody who ever lived enough of his grace to free your will because our wills are in bondage to sin. Left to our own devices, we're bent towards sin. Dishonesty, self-centeredness, pride, ring a bell. You know, you look around the world today. We are bent towards sin. He said he gave everybody enough grace that not that you could be saved, but that you could lift your head up and go, Jesus Christ, I can respond. And so what, what Wesleyans think, this by the way is a Wesleyan church, is that God gave everybody enough grace that you can respond to what he has done. You don't choose God. He chose us in one way or another first. He acted first. He made a way through Jesus Christ without us having anything to do with it. But Wesley would say, and he gave us enough grace that we could respond with yes, Lord. Does that make sense? That's the difference in those two points of view. And it's just how you read it in the, the essence of the idea of predestination, okay? So that's the difference. And it's not a big difference, it can make a bit of a difference and people sure do argue vehemently about it for the past 500 years. But what I wanna focus on is more the similarities in this. And the two big similarities are this. 
Both points of view believe this scripture is true. God did the choosing, not me. If it weren't for him, there wouldn't be anything to respond to. In other words, left him, if he hadn't acted first, my fate is sealed. I've already uh, been alienated from God. So God acts first. Second thing is, and this is probably the most important thing, we spend more time thinking about how did God elect people than we do about a bigger point, and that is, what were you chosen for? Now, that is an interesting question because the fact of how did I get chosen? Was it all God or was it my response part of it? We could argue about that till the cows come home, but whatever it is, once you've placed your, your trust in Christ and you are amongst the elect, the chosen, the predestined, as Romans said, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Once you're in that group, you gotta be asking yourself, wait a minute, God did, not, God did not save me because I'm good looking. He didn't save me because of my good deeds, for heaven's sakes, he planned this whole thing before I was even born. Wonder what I was chosen for. And this scripture tells you that. And there's no argument about this. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we should be, meaning this is the purpose of our choice, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to actually be adopted as children through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This is probably where we need to spend most of our time and our thought is that God saved us, God rescued us, and he did so for a purpose. If you wanna think about it compared to the Old Testament, you think about the Jews being God's chosen people, and they were. Why were they chosen? Well, even the Old Testament, even the Jews realized they weren't chosen because they were better than anybody else. They were chosen to accomplish a specific mission. And that is be a light to the Gentiles and show them the holiness of God. And here are 613 rules. And when you start living this way, trust me, people are gonna go, wow, your God is awesome. You and I too have been chosen for a mission. And that is to be holy. Holiness has a little bit to do with conduct, but really before the conduct comes, my whole heart, my whole life, my heart, mind, soul, and strength is completely devoted to God. And I've turned away from all of the things in this world that used to entice me. I have surrendered, these are other words we use. I've surrendered my life to Christ. I've been born again. I've been raised to walk in newness of life. These are all scriptural ways of saying that I'm holy. What does it mean to be holy? You've been set apart for a specific purpose. Well, I'm set apart, heart, mind, soul, and strength for God and what he wants to do with me. Well, it turns out he doesn't want to do anything harsh with you. He calls you to be part of the family. Act like you're part of the family. Be part of the family business. Get out there and do the great commission. Make disciples of all the nations. So the, the idea of what we're, we're called and elected and chosen to is probably the biggest uh, issue for me. God's grace does not permit us to remain as we are. If you think about it, we were on a path that led to destruction and we have been rescued and we have been brought into his family and we are now, as Romans will say, on, right, on the road of rightness with God, reconciliation with God, which leads to eternal life. God's grace isn't just something you get like a you know, a Sam's card or a Costco card, like, oh, that's good, I'll put that in my wallet and I'll bet they got a Sam's in hell. No, that's not the way this works. It's not something that you get put on you. He's plucked you out and put you on a different path. That's who you are. And I think this is one of the best passages and you should read it a lot, not because of the disagreement, and it's an interesting disagreement on the whole method of election and so forth, but really because this is a description of who you are and what you are. And God was thinking about you before the foundation of the world, and God chose you to do something that's just unbelievable. 
I mean, it's, I, I love it when Paul said he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. What would you call being adopted into the very family of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I'd call that every spiritual blessing. Question. How does the phrase, God knew the number of our days before a single one occurred, relate to predestination? Yeah, it's great. How does the phrase, God knew every one of our days before we were born, uh, you know, he talks to Jeremiah and says, uh, I knew you before I knit you together in your mother's womb. You know, all this idea of God's omniscience, uh, God's foreknowledge, meaning he knew beforehand who you were, what you would do, that kind of thing. The general doctrine of God's, he knows all things. How does that tie in with the idea of predestination? Both Calvin and Wesley, I'm just gonna personalize it for a minute, very much agree with that. They absolutely believe God is omniscient. They believe God foreknew all these things about us. The difference is Calvin is gonna say that God's election of us is due to his absolute sovereignty, just like his absolute omniscience. Whereas Wesley is going to say God foreknew who would respond to him, but he welcomes all who would respond to him. So Calvin really emphasizes God's sovereignty. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's not contingent upon anything else. Whereas Wesley understands this foreknowledge is how God knew who would respond. Nevertheless, all who, are, who respond uh, can be saved, would be rescued. Good question. Well, after we get through with the idea of God choosing us, now you move into the mechanism through which this happened, and it's called redemption. In Jesus, this is how Paul does this. Whatever the last word was in the sentence before, he's gonna daisy chain off. So in the beloved, that's Jesus. So this is the very next part of the sentence. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, which is, this is an equal sign. What is redemption? The forgiveness of our sins. How so? Because he's gracious, according to, it doesn't say because you are such a good person. It says because he's gracious, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. Notice all this language, it's all about God. It's not about you and me. It's God did everything. Our response is, thank you, Lord, for the unbelievable blessings says he set forth in Christ, the whole point of what Jesus did on the cross and raised from the dead is a plan that he waited until the fullness of time to unite everything in Christ, things on heaven, things on the earth. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to whose purpose? The purpose of the one who works all things, God, according to God's purpose, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So this word redemption, so the work of God was in the election, was the making a way to rescue us from the path of destruction. He's rescuing us. Jesus is the mechanism through which he does it. And the idea is that redemption is necessary. So Jesus doesn't come like Gandhi, he doesn't come like Buddha, he doesn't come like any other great teachers and say, I came here so that you would understand something and that understanding will change your life. That is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not just a wise teacher. I, he's certainly a wise teacher, but that is, has nothing to do with what Jesus is about. You see, you and I are doomed. We're not neutral. It's not like he's trying to win over converts. Just when you go preach to people that don't know Christ, they're not neutral. Oh, it could go either way. No, they are on the road to destruction the same as you and I were. Unless God intervenes, they will be destroyed. That is, that is the anthropology, if you will, of the Bible. So when you come back to the idea of redemption, redemption says you actually are enslaved to something. And we are, we are slaves to sin. That's what the scripture talks about is we have become servants of sin and the consequences of that are death. So there's actually a price that has to be paid. And this word for redemption, very common word in ancient times, not a religious word. 
It is now to us. You say redemption, everybody goes, oh, must be a Christian. It was a very common word. It just means ransom. And so if you got kidnapped today, you, if somebody gets kidnapped and they say, I want $1,000 ransom, that's called redemption. In other words, if you ever want to see him again, you've got to pay this. Well, that is what justice called for. I sinned. I have a price on my head. I've got a burden I can't pay. If you want to pluck me out off the road to destruction, you've got to pay the price. That's called the ransom. Okay, funny story. It has nothing to do with this, but it does have something to do with ransom. All right, so you guys know Julius Caesar. We talked about him in our last series. All right, so Julius Caesar got captured by pirates. This is in the century before Jesus was born. Julius Caesar, when he was 25 years old, was, was captured by pirates, and he was a prisoner, and they ransomed him. They sent a letter to his family saying, we've got little jewels, and if you ever want to see him again, you need to pay us 20 talents, because they know he's a nobleman. 20 talents is a lot of money. But Caesar said, no, no, no. And so he says to the pirates, he said, you have no idea who you have here. 20 talents is not nearly enough. <laughs> this is a true story. He said, you need to ask for 50 because I'm worth that much. And they were like, okay, sure enough. They send the letter saying, you need to pay 50 talents. They do. And he leaves and they're like, hey, appreciate it. He goes, yeah, no problem. He says, but when I get to be king of the world, he's 25. When I get to be in charge, I'll hunt you all down and kill you. And they all, ha, 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 what a great kid. See you later. And so, true story, later when he becomes the emperor of Rome, he hunts them down and kills every one of them. Okay, that was the P, not the PG-13 part of this story. All right. So the idea of ransom is a very common idea. You and I have become enthralled to sin. And so what Jesus Christ did was he came to pay the ransom. And we call that redemption. And that's all it is. And it's a great way to think about it. So God chose us, but Jesus redeemed us. He paid the price without which we could never get off that road. Make sense? Okay. Last part of the sentence. The Holy Spirit seals us. What does that mean? We don't use that word very much. It says, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the good news, gospel means good news, the good news of your salvation, and you believed, you placed your trust in Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God as a guarantee of your inheritance. What inheritance? You have been adopted. Remember the first part, God chose you. He rescued you and adopted you. That's part of his purpose into his family. You're heirs. You're heirs of the creator of all things. That's a guarantee until we acquire possession of it. So think about what this is saying. It's saying that the Holy Spirit, God says, you are rescued and you have eternity with me. And to prove to you, my son defeated death Christ made the way, so you are going to live forever. And as a down payment that I can do what I say I'm going to do, here is my very spirit which will dwell in you. When you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you were given the Holy Spirit of God inside you as a seal. There's two ways to think about this idea of being sealed. One of them is a story, and this is really vivid to me, so if you've heard this before, uh, bear with me. But when our kids were little, we have boys, three sons, and my oldest son, I remember when he was little, I mean really little, like uh, old enough to play hide and seek, but not, not very old, you know, like two or three years old. And so he got into a phase where he loved to play hide and seek. I loved it too, because I was tired. I just wanted to read the paper. And when he would go hide, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'd read a little of the paper before I go to look. But anyway, so it's a good game for both of us, all right? But seriously, he was a fearless little fellow. I mean, he would go hide in places that I'd get a little nervous about. I mean, he'd be in the back of the closet in the dark. I mean, what little kid is not afraid of the dark? Anyway, he would go anywhere. But I would always find him. And you know, he used to wonder. 
It's like, Dad, you are like the best hide-and-seek player ever. And I'm like, yeah, well, you're right, I am. And uh, as a few years later, he realized, nah, old Dad's not all he's cracked up to be. But he could never hide from me. And I'll tell you my secret of hide-and-seek. He had these pajamas. They were little rocket ship pajamas. And he loved these pajamas. You know why he loved these pajamas? Glowed in the dark. I mean, all the little planets and all the little rocket ships glowed in the dark. So he thinks he's hiding in the deep, dark darkness in the back of the closet. He shines like a light to me. I just opened the door. There he is, because he's glowing, right? And so I never lost him, could always find him. I want you to think about being sealed with the Holy Spirit like that. You see, when God places his spirit in you, you glow in the dark. You literally shine. This is what scripture says. You shine as lights in this crooked world. That makes sense? When God looks at you, that spirit of God inside you is like a glow in the dark. And I mean the dark of trials and difficulties, the dark of cancer, the dark of this world, the dark of persecution for those Christians and Christians in the world today, whatever darkness you get into, God can always see you because you're connected to him through his spirit. You literally glow in the dark. And whenever you feel alone, I want you to realize there literally is a light inside of you. It is the spirit of God. John chapter one says it this way, that Jesus is light coming into the world and he, the light shines in the darkness. You remember this, John 1, 1 through 5? And the darkness cannot overcome it. The spirit in you, this is John in 1 John, is greater than the spirit in the world. And so I always think of that story because I always thought I could never lose that kid. And I always knew where he was because he glowed in the dark. And that's true for you and your father too. You glow in the dark. Maybe a little more pedestrian way of thinking about it though is this. This is what they would have thought because they didn't have glow-in-the-dark pajamas. So when they heard it, this is what they would have thought. So this is a, an urn and it carried a lot of things. This one probably had wine in it, but these urns could have anything, grain, storage, anything in them. And so when you're shipping them or you're storing them, you put a seal on them uh, like today, we would just put property of U.S. government or property of Crossings Community Church, right? We would stencil some letters on it. Well, that's not what they did then. What they did was these are made out of clay. And so uh, when the clay is soft before it was fired, they would literally take a little stamp, not very big, and uh, they would basically put an impression into the clay. That's called a seal. And they would seal it. And on that seal had the name of the person that owned it. And this seal, I know you can't read the Hebrew, but trust me, it says L-M-L-K. Melech, M-L-K, means king in Hebrew. And Lamelech means belonging to the king. And that seal, uh, by the way, was found on that jar, and you'll find it a lot of places, and when you are an archeologist, and you find that and you see that seal, you know, this was a palace because this is a storehouse for things that belong to the king. And they're all stamped that way, so we must be excavating a palace here. So in their minds, this idea of a seal, we don't use it very often because we don't do business that way. We're much more electronic, but fundamentally this idea of sealing something means putting a stamp of ownership on it. And so when it says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit means that when you placed your trust in Christ, when you believed, you were stamped, if you will, with the seal of ownership of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords of God himself. And that's what the Holy Spirit is that is inside you and me. It is the seal of God saying, you belong to me for eternity and nothing can snatch you out of my hand. This is, this is Jesus in John 10. 
So this beautiful little sentence, let me just kind of sum up. We've done a lot of talking here, but I don't want you to lose sight of the structure. The idea is that God chose us through no merit of our own. Calvin says he did it unilaterally. Wesley said he gave us all enough grace to be able to respond to his offer. Either way, it's God acting and God deciding to intervene and rescue us from the destiny that we had, that we had picked, the destiny of sin, which is destruction. And he made a way for that to happen because somebody had to pay the ransom. Someone had to pay the bill. And Jesus Christ said, the son of God says, I will be the ransom. And so he gives his life, as he said, I've come to be a ransom for many. I mean, as you read the New Testament, this stuff's just all gonna click together. Jesus said, I came to be a ransom for many. And that's sure enough, he did, indeed. And so he was the ransom that made it possible for us to receive God's rescue. And when he did so, God marked us with his Holy Spirit saying, you are mine, you are different, you are set apart. I mean, you could have a lot of these urns for a moment and you could have a bunch of them sitting there and one of them has the seal of the king. Well, that's different, isn't it? That's what's called being holy. You're different, you're set apart, you belong to the king. That's what holiness is. That's what you and I have been chosen for, is to be set apart and said, okay, that one, that is a son or daughter of the most high God. These people are not. Not everyone is a child of God. Everyone is created by God. Everyone is created in the image of God and everyone deserves dignity and respect and care. But not everyone has joined the household of God only those who have the seal of the Most High on them. And so that's how Paul starts out this letter. And it's intended not to be like it normally is for us, a theological debate. It's actually one of the more wow kind of statements. And he starts out positively saying, listen, you are so blessed that you have no idea how blessed you are. This isn't Paul just talking to the Ephesians. This is Paul talking to you. This is God saying this to you and me. When you walk out of here, I want you to have this in your mind. This is true of you. You are blessed beyond belief because God chose to intervene for you and he was willing to ransom you with his son and he's placed his seal on you. Now, go act like sons and daughters of the most high God and that's all you have to do. Make sense? Excellent. Well, the next thing he's gonna talk about is, and I wanna kind of cue this up just a little bit, because he's going to answer a question that's probably in your mind. And that is, wow, that is awesome. And I am filled with gratitude and in awe of God's grace to me, God's absolute mercy to me. God's, you know, grace is basically just God's disposed well toward you. God chose to give me gifts for, I don't know why, it wasn't anything to do with me. And so you have this idea, but then you say, great, Terry, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna act like what I am, a daughter or a son of the most high God. Well, then the question comes up and Paul knows this question's gonna come up because now let's get a little more practical. And the next question is, how should I act? What does that look like? So we know that we are not saved by our good deeds, but can we be saved without good deeds? And if so, how many good deeds? And that's what I wanna answer next week. I'll tell you exactly how many good deeds you have to do. <laughs> I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>